Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today it's my pleasure to have as my guest, Dr. Jessica Hooten-Wilson. Jessica is the Louise Cowan Scholar-in-Residence at the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. She's written for Gospel Coalition, National Review, The Christian Century, Comment Magazine, and Inglewood Review of Books, and she's the author of several books, including the Christianity Today Book Award winner, Giving the Devil His Due, Demonic Authority in the Fiction of Flannery O'Connor and Fyodor Dostoevsky. And she's actually been entrusted by the Flannery O'Connor estate to prepare O'Connor's unfinished third novel for publication. She's a, She speaks around the country, but we're today we're here to talk about her latest book, the Scandal of Holiness, Renewing Your Imagination in the Company of Literary Saints. This book releases on March 29th of 2022 from Brazos Press. And if you're interested, she has a really great pre-order offer. It's going to be down in the show notes, so check it out. And you can hear interviews and some Facebook Live events with other popular uh, uh, Christian thinkers. You're going to find this interview really powerful. We get into Christian imagination, the power of narrative, among other topics. So let's jump into the conversation. Hi, Jessica. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, I'm really grateful. And just to get started with hopefully a, a, an interesting background question, uh, can you share some of the key moments in your own spiritual journey that led you to have your interest in literature and to be a, both an author and a professor? Sure. I think that's probably the way that God reached out to me when I was young was through literature. So I was an early reader and I started reading the Bible when I was really young and I loved the stories. I led my own Bible studies at church. I mm -hmm. used to like sneak out. I would actually like leave the window open in the Sunday school classroom so that I could just go back in um, secretly and hold my own Bible study. So I think the Lord reached out to me when I was really small, wanting to teach and, and read the Bible with people. Um, and then that turned into also reading stories that were just as magnetic as the biblical stories, right? And they usually deepened something that I was confused on or um, taught me something about forgiveness or love that I that I hadn't seen before in the scriptures. So the Bible became this lens through which I read a lot of other books, and these other books just deepened my my love of the Bible. And, and so, talk a little bit about your, your new books called "The Scandal of Holiness." That's just a great title, and um, and if, it, if this makes it if we're on video, there you can see the flame on there. I love the I love the cover too. Renewing your imagination in the company of literary saints. So. Yeah. Connect those the two big words there, imagination and, and holiness. What's the link between the cultivation of, of imagination and Christian holiness? Sure. So when you think of the human person, you have, you know, your brain, you have your gut, like your appetites, and, your, and then you have your heart where your desires are. And a lot of your emotions and your morals are coming from you act, right? You will from, from your heart and from what you love right? You'd pursue what you love. And so I'm dealing with that part of the person. So it's not that the, and I say that in the book, it's not that the intellect is not important. I mean, I have a PhD in theology. Like I think the intellect is very important, but I think it's secondary to the imagination, which is our first access point um, to how we see the world. And so when it comes to holiness, holiness is primarily driven by what you love and what you desire, not necessarily just what you know to be good or what you know to be true. 
right? And so what I'm trying to tap into is this idea that um, you might have all the right ethical answers, but how do you like how do you imagine where they fit in your story? How much do you want those things that you know are good for you? And to be holy, you have to desire them. You have to desire things sometimes even that are not rationally good for you because they may not look like they're the right choice, right? But in the long term that they are. So yeah, so that's what I'm trying to get at is, is looking at these stories, for examples, for how to see our own story. Well, that just kind of blew my mind. So I have to, I'm going to have to process and come back to some of that stuff too, because I love that. So I guess I'm, I'm just curious, so are, are you, have you been influenced by like James K.A. Smith, some of the work that he talks about, like he has a book, um, what uh, you are, what you love. I think, I, I mean, I don't know if that was just a serendipitous way, how you just framed that. I haven't read that. But when I was first teaching, I, um, I read Desiring the Kingdom and I mm-hmm. loved his chapters on teaching because I thought that's exactly right. I mean, this is the answer is that if you can get students to love the things in your class, mm-hmm. then they're not just trying to check the box. And so they won't just say, what can I get away with? Or, you know, what do I have to do? they will want to be there. And I've found that to be true, that if I can cultivate a certain kind of classroom in which they feel like they have a necessary role of participation in it, um, then even when I've been absent or I've had to travel for work or whatever, they still meet, they still want to be there. Mm-hmm. And so so Jamie Smith was great for, um, for showing me how to have those kind of liturgies of the classroom, how to create an atmosphere of the class that, that involves the whole person, the whole body. Um, but as far as like the imagination and, and its role, that's been C.S. Lewis and Dante mm-hmm. for me. C.S. Lewis and Dante very much affected how I saw those things working out together. Okay. Um, yeah, thank you. I, I loved, I appreciate that, that this whole body uh, experience that you're talking about. And so why then is, uh, why is, and I don't know if you'd agree with this or not, but why, why would, is, is fiction a better way at helping a person to imagine that and, and become, um, imagine what holiness looks like? And if so, like, how is it better than say a nonfiction book, at least for cultivating imagination? Yeah, well, so, you know, Lauren Winter in her forward kind of argues with me because I wrote a nonfiction book. Yeah, that was fun that she put it in there. <laughs> It's great. Well, I love, I mean, I love her contrarian nature because I mean, that's, that's how I actually learned too, is to, to argue back and forth. Um, and, and I, I think a lot of my ideas, I'm an external processor. So, you know, so I love that she approached that because it, it shows the dialogic nature of, of my book. I'm trying to have a conversation. I, ideally, I would love everyone to be reading this book, you know, in a book club or in a Sunday school class, like in conversation. That's why there's discussion mm-hmm. questions, et cetera. So, so why fiction over nonfiction? Well, because I think the story is the first access point. So, so, you know, you're living out these experiences and then you reflect on, did I do the right thing? Should I have done something different? What would I do tomorrow? How could I change the situation? How can I fix problems? But, but those questions are not abstracted from the narrative you're living in. And so for me, the fiction is that first place that that teaches you what it means to be in your story, that teaches you that there's an author of, of your tale, that there's a purpose for what you're doing, that there's a telos, that there's a beginning, middle, and end, and that all the decisions you make along the way, of course, are part of that. But as I, I quote Alistair McIntyre in the beginning of the book, like, you don't know how to act unless you know of what story you are a part. So you have to be able to see the story overall. So I just, it's not that I think that one is higher than the other. I think one is the entry and then secondarily the intellect. Um, but it, I don't think it's a ranking thing. 
I think it's more of a um, linear process or something. No, and it's good. And I, and I don't even want to really argue about it. I was just, I'm just trying to, what I was trying to think about is like, um, like you could read the Bible as if it were fiction and you get a story there that invites you to live within its narrative, if you will. But though we would say the Bible is nonfiction, except for maybe, you know, a couple books in there. Then I was also thinking about another example. It's pretty powerful. Um, Augustine's Confessions, which is, uh, you know, that's, presumably a work of nonfiction, yeah. <laughs> but it, but it's a memoir and like, and you could in the way, and, and I think that what that's made that powerful is that he was able to really penetrate and describe his interior life in some ways, which is what fiction writers mm -hmm. do so well. Right. So like, could you talk a little bit about the difference between maybe a really well-written transparent memoir and fiction in terms of cultivating imagination and being models for uh, for Christian living? Yeah, I think our categories are probably too problematic. I, you know, we've only started to categorize stuff in the last several hundred years. But if you look back over the course of, of human history, going back to the BC eras, you didn't have this distinction between between what was fiction or nonfiction or what was real or what was false even, because some of the ways that you crafted um, true experience into an artistic mode that you could then portray to another person, it was a form of communication, right? That hopefully got more at the truth than even the experience did originally, because by crafting it, you were putting it into a pattern that showed the theme, that showed um, the true ideas that were there, that showed what justice looked like by by framing it in a certain way. And that's what I, that's what Confessions does. So Augustine would have never thought in terms of fiction, nonfiction, memoir. He wouldn't have thought in those terms. Instead, it was, I had a life. How can I convey to my listeners that my life was being directed by God? How could I tell my story in such a way by creating certain patterns, right? I mean, he... He steals from the biblical episode of the Garden of Eden mm -hmm. in which he steals pears, you know, from a tree. And then later he's converted under a tree, you know, like one of the apostles under a fig tree who Jesus sees and meets there. I mean, there's this there's this way that he's crafting his narrative to highlight who God is and how God works in a human's person's life. That's what narrative is. And mm -hmm. So, so even the category of fiction, I'm using novels. We're familiar with fiction, but a lot of these stories, they're about real people. There's Moses, man of the mountain and, and Zora Neale Hurston is highlighting the biblical realities through fiction because she's just trying to tell you a story in a way that makes the story come to life for you. And, and so I, I wouldn't even want to distinguish necessarily between those categories because they, they make a false sense of, uh, of real and false that, that doesn't work, <laughs> you know, ultimately. Yeah. No, I think that's really helpful. So thank, thank you for, thank you for that. I think it gets at actually what I was thinking, even on the, on the question itself, uh, cause you could have by what you just said, it's more about how penetrating the writing is and how much it illuminates kind of the interior nature of, of, of pieces and points to God, regardless of the, the genre per se. Right. Yeah. So when you, I mean, you did the impossible thing and I mean, this is a completely unfair question, but obviously you limit your book to the 20th century, right? And uh, and then you had, and then even with, and then there's only a gazillion books that get published every year. And then you have to sit around and wait, decide which ones are the are best ones. But what makes a great work of, of Christian fiction? And then, you know, and why did you limit it just to say the 20th century when you were putting your book together? Yeah. So, I mean, that, you know, it's kind of an arbitrary, but you have to limit somewhere. Mm -hmm. 
And, and I teach the great book. So I teach from Augustine's confessions. I teach Homer and Plato and, you know, I, so I teach it all the way through. So I'm not throwing out the canon. Yeah. I didn't hear you saying that. Yeah. Good in, in, in picking these novels. Um, but one of the reasons that I did is because, I mean, especially 20th century fiction, you have, um, this period where people are digging into the deep questions because of historically what's going on for them. And so you have the Catholic Renaissance in literature, you have um, these Protestant responses in which they're trying to move past evangelical literature, which you don't even have the creation of evangelical fiction until like the 80s or 70s. Um, uh, Daniel Silliman did that book, like reading evangelical. So, so that's a completely new genre in which Protestants are moving into stories. So I chose 20th century novels because I think they're the best examples of the kind of stories that were intentionally Christian, but also intentionally great literature. And that really is a new category because it doesn't take place pre-1900s. Dostoevsky would have never considered he was doing something different than Dickens or Poe, right? And yet as a Christian, his work is vibrantly spiritual in what he's doing. But it's only in the 20th century that you have kind of these antagonistic forces against Christianity. You have the modernist, you have the the anti-Christian movement, you have the secularism that is, you know, prevalent, you know, Charles Taylor analyzing all of that. And, and then you have these writers who are like, well, I'm Christian, what kind of story am I going to tell? And so I just feel like you have a whole new wealth of novels that are, um, that are just vastly different uh, than what came before. That's good. That's good. And how did you pick the themes? Like, you know, you go through your chapters, you basically kind of have a theme and then there's certain authors that go with them. And, and I found those really interesting. I don't want to give the whole book away, but like, how did you come up with like the, yeah, the, the, like the, the structure of your book with the different kind of theological themes that you explore? Yeah. So I was really trying to, I, I teach a lot about the virtues. Like I said, mm -hmm. when I teach from Homer all the way through now, there's some virtues that are continuous. So you have these ideas of justice that dominated the Greek imagination. You have Dante enters the picture in the Middle Ages and he's adding like faith, hope, and love. And a lot of that gets really accepted. What I love is what takes place in the 20th century where these novelists are trying to go even beyond the accepted virtues of faith, hope, love, justice, temperance, courage. What are some weird things that they take on that have biblical precedent, but that people never really leaned into um, as far mm. as what a Christian calling looks like. Because anybody who leaned into them became a crazy ascetic in the desert or became a, you know, a saint, but they didn't become a writer. And, and so now we have writers that are writing about like suffering and asceticism in fiction, which is just, so what I did was I just looked at some of these powerful examples of novels. What did I learn from them? You know, Loris made such an impression on me. Why? You know, what was the character doing? Is that something that can be imitated? So it was more like the novels themselves and they made an impression. And then I tried to see what is it that they were doing that went beyond the pale, that went um, beyond those seven classic virtues that that most people talk about and, and why. And I think even, you know, reading through my book now, I feel like there's even more categories, of course, that I could come up with and that I could write on and um, more novels that I would want to write on. But um but that, that's how I initially started was with the books themselves, not with the categories and then trying to match a book. Yeah, can, and you know, and I, again, I, I read your book really fast before I got on here with you. So I missed somehow this, the, the seven virtue piece. Maybe it was, I, I just, it wasn't obvious to me. So I find that really fascinating. So, 
So when you take the four base ones that go back to like the Stoics and stuff, the what is it? Wisdom. You yep. said them: wisdom, courage, temperance, justice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, what? What? what and you you mixed in asceticism and such. So, uh, how? I just like to hear more about what the new values are in the 20th century that have moved beyond that. And I'm also just trying to listen from like a global perspective, because you might just kind of argue back against the classical period that they, that was just, you know, one part of the planet versus others, but I didn't necessarily hear that coming out in your answer. So could you say a little bit more about how you see the 20th century is maybe expanded out of the, at least the four core ones, plus the faith, hope, and love, which are the, what the cardinal virtues. Sure. And this could, I mean, this becomes a history of ideas conversation because of course, in the Western tradition, so just speaking of the West, in the Western tradition, going from the Greek and then the Christian interpretation of it in the West, you have this consistent idea of what the virtues are mm -hmm. until the Enlightenment, which starts breaking them apart. And then you have the Victorian era that still wants to hold on to the virtues, but without the faith undergirding it anymore. Yeah. yeah. And of course, Nietzsche in the 1880s points this out. He's saying, okay, I'm tired of you all holding on to all these virtues and manners, the genealogy of morals, all these morals. If you don't believe in Christianity, then these morals don't make any sense. Just let them go and go be original, go do something, go be autonomous, find your own way, make your own path. And, and he has a point. If, if all of it is just the shell without any of the substance, you don't need the Christian morals anymore. That's, so that's 1880s, right? That's right before the, the 20th century starts that he throws out the whole tradition. And I think what Christianity had to grapple with um, at that moment was, do we go the Nietzschean way or is there something here that's not only worth preserving, but like maybe we need to restore, like maybe we need to get back to what the New Testament looks like. And I think when you do that, you see that the New Testament was much more than just Greek and Hebrew. It, it was really transcending that. I mean, it was saying, you know, be first Peter, be holy as I am holy. Like that was huge. Mm. Uh, go be a fool in the world and they will hate you and they will think you're crazy. That's a big deal. I mean, those are, that is not just being courageous, right? That's going beyond that. Uh, and so what I was trying to look at is, okay, as Christians in the New Testament, if we were going to show Nietzsche that there's something even more powerful than what he grappled with, what would that look like? And, and so that's why I went through liberation, which I think is just a phenomenal testament to what Christianity is and should be, um, that we've always been about freeing souls, right? And um, yeah, looking at how to die, you know, when it comes to being Nietzsche, he's exactly right until he has to face death. And then, I mean, then was it enough the way he lived, you know, it really gets tested in those kinds of moments. Suffering, those are the big questions for me that you can't you can't just be good or nice or humanist about. That's good. I love that. So thanks for the little detour there. I think that that uh, that's that's really good. That's going to help everybody that listens to me. I always lay out the seven virtues, and then I try to then I I try to build up a, a renewal of the faith off of off of those pieces with uh, certain kinds of practices. So I think I love your answer. So thank you for uh, for letting me have that little detour there. And I, I love the great books and stuff too. I just haven't got to the 20th century yet in my yeah. slow read through all these things here. So. Now, this makes my next question almost seem redundant in a sense, because I was curious when I was just going through and looking at the different authors that, you know, when, when I, I always ask my students, at the, as, when the semester just started at Asbury, so I just asked them, like, what's, you know, what are books that have impacted you personally that you'd love to recommend to others? And it's, uh, and 
occasionally get fiction, but usually when it's fiction, it ends up being like, I'll have to say like, there's this, my mom loves this author, Francine Rivers, and you know, she's very popular. She sells, and she has a book called Redeeming Love that it's kind of a metaphor. I've never, I've never read it, but that always pops up in the students almost every single time. And not that you needed to include her or whatever, but um, you know, you have certain Christian authors that are more popular, just like there's popular secular authors. Um, what's your critique of those books? And I guess since I just heard what you say, I know exactly what it's going to yeah. be, but it's, it's not like they're bad, but they're just not deep enough in some way. Or how would, how would you, how do you talk, how make that conversation with somebody that just mostly reads like popular books? Yeah. So I'm actually going to be really offensive there and say it's bad. Um, because, <laughs> so I, that actually is where my title's coming from. These yeah. Yeah. Holiness is that holiness will scandalize you. Those books just pat you on the back. That's true. Right? Yeah. In no way do they challenge you to be more than what you are. They are very Nietzschean. <laughs> like they yeah. are. Like I love it. Hey, if this is what you want, go get it. Right? And and that is such a lie. Like when it comes to fiction that is bad for you, I find it more problematic to read things like Janet Oaks, Francine Rivers, Frank Peretti. I find that much more damaging to the Christian imagination than reading Nietzsche. Like I would rather people grapple with iconoclasm and what kind of idols of the Christian faith are being torn down, right? Than to just be patted on the back and be assured that you're being a good Christian and you can love Jesus and coffee just as much one as the other. Like that kind of stuff is such a lie. Um, and, and I don't think that's real faith. I don't think that's what God calls us to. Um, and it, it scares me. And this is why it's going to be offensive. And a bunch of people may turn off your podcast at this point, but it scares me when you read in the scriptures that we all think we're in the church and some of us are going to knock on the door and Christ is going to say, I don't know you. Maybe if you're following only that clan and that's your only diet is the cotton candy of the Christian faith, you're not going to have the meat necessary to be able to knock on the door and he knows who you are. Like that's, that should scare you. That should at least make you question. So I'm not condemning or judging anybody, but I'm saying like, you should examine your heart. <laughs> No, no, I think, no, I love it. You're not going to fit anybody on this podcast. I, I go, I'm on records have, saying my guilty pleasure is reading Paul Tillich. And uh, I actually like Nietzsche. And I mean, honestly, my coffee cup, I have a one must assume a Sisyphus is happy mug because I, I love reading Camus and stuff like that, too, because I like reading these heavy artillery authors that really challenge me. And that's that's what's helped me more as I've gotten older. And uh, so I, that, that's so I loved I actually loved your answer. And I I always say, I, I even say, I'll be most offensive. I don't even like popular Christian music because I find it um, just too, <laughs> it's, it's too happy. You know, it doesn't always fit with my life so much. And I like the Psalms and stuff too. So I think that's what I'm hearing you say. So that's, that's the, that's the real distinction there that you have uh, books that are super challenging that go deep, that face up the, you know, that look into the abyss, if you will, um, but don't want to become a Superman like Nietzsche talks about, but want to, either fall into the pit and hope God's down there or, or just, uh, right. That's, that's kind of what I always think. You just got to let go and fall in the pit and then believe yeah. it or not, God is actually in the abyss somehow, which is, yeah. uh, yeah. So, well, thank I love that. Loved your answer. And, uh, um, I maybe I'm actually, I think I like you now because you might be just as offensive as I am. So it's like, <laughs> we, have, we have some good company here too. So. <laughs> For the truth, you know, Flannery used to say, Flannery O'Connor, I love O'Connor. So Flannery O'Connor said, like, she was never trying to offend people just to offend people. She was trying to offend them with the truth. Yeah, that's good. Right? So I'm not, a, I'm not trying to offend a sensibility. I'm trying to offend a wayward person to come back to the truth. 
and find the more depth really it's not even a fence it's just saying hey there's a lot more depth here that can that in, and if the, the deeper we go we can be more relevant to the world because the world has real pain and has questions that the easy answers don't always uh go to yeah we do too i mean we can't just anesthetize ourselves every time we hurt as though yeah. as christians like we're not supposed to hurt so maybe i should just have another drink or maybe i should go buy something it'll make me feel better i mean you know we really have to say wow why am i hurting why am I hurting if I believe in God? What does that tell me about the human condition and really face it and say like, there's something real here. And this is the way that life is. That's good. So good. Thank you. Thank you for the, that, yeah. uh, that, 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 that answer. So then what about like non-Christian authors? Cause a lot of these folks really peer into the darkness uh, really powerfully too. Um, Again, you wrote a book on Christian fiction, but I was just curious, and you teach the great books, so you have appreciation for things that come that outside the faith that really challenge it. So uh, yeah. can, can reading non-Christian fiction expand our imagination in helpful ways, too, as believers? Yeah, well, and I don't only include Christians in the book. So Zora Neale Hurston's not a Christian. She oh, was okay. raised by a Baptist preacher, but she's not Christian. Ernest Gaines was not a Christian, and I okay. loved him before dying. Uh, Willa Cather, not a Christian. So I write on, I do that purposefully because I believe more in the Augustinian Egyptian gold metaphor in which he says, you know, God told the Israelites as they were leaving Egypt to take the Egyptians gold with them. And then later, of course, they use it to build the altar. Like the idea that whatever is good, even if it's found among the pagans, even if it's found right in secular writers, if it is good, it always belonged to God and only came from God because God created everything. Right. So I read everything. And um, some of my favorite authors are very like they've turned against the faith. And George Saunders, I think, is one of the richest authors that people can read. He's, you know, he's so vulgar and he curses a lot, um, but he's dealing with human questions. He's dealing with mortality. He's dealing with substance. He's not going to tell a lie. He's, he's seeking for real truth. Um, he's not going to propagandize you. And so you have to kind of find those, those kinds of authors, whether they're Christian or non-Christian, are they telling the truth? Are they trying to tell the truth about the world? Are they writing something beautiful? Um, and so that's what I'm looking for. Uh, not necessarily, not necessarily Christian. That's good. Thank you. And then I know you're working on a new book on this, which, uh, so that, but this next question could be a whole nother interview. Yeah. When, maybe when that book comes out, we can talk about it more, but I'm curious. Um, I know, I mean, I'm well-educated. I have a PhD. I've been reading since I was five years old and, but I still struggle. I mean, some books are just flat out hard to read. And I, and I find a lot of the heavy, some of the really heavy fiction books, mm -hmm not necessarily the ones that you have in your book are, are just hard, hard to read. I mean, I've, um, so if a person wants to take the path that you're offering and then and turn away from, you know, easy books and again, a writing style, I mean, Hemingway's easy to read and stuff and he's can be deep at, at, at times. But um, if you want to move into more literary fiction, which I think those are the books that you, that's how it, the genre we're really talking about, it that demands some skills from us as readers. Um, any thoughts on that? Like, how do you, how do you learn to read hard books? Absolutely. So you're right. The, the book that I wrote, I don't write on a lot of hard books. Um, so the, the books that are in the scandal of holiness are not supposed to be that kind of Mount Everest for readers. So I, I chose more popular. They, a lot of them were bestsellers. A lot of them were award winners. 
at the same time, I do teach what you've called the heavy hitters, right? Um, I, I teach Dostoevsky and Solzhenitsyn and so forth. I think as a culture, we are very impatient. Mm-hmm. And we also desire efficiency. Oh, hold on. That shouldn't happen. We also desire efficiency so much that we want, you know, more bang for our buck, more, you know, if I'm going to invest the time, I want it quickly and I want it efficiently back to me. And literature doesn't really allow you to do that mm-hmm. because it wants you to be patient. It's cultivating different virtues in you by demanding and asking something of your attention. Now, that doesn't mean that every single old book is worth reading. It doesn't mean that every single book that you start, you have to finish at that time in your life. You might start the Brothers Karamazov and it's the wrong season. You're not ready for it. And that's okay. Like you, it's There's nothing virtuous about finishing the Brothers Karamazov, right? Um, but if God is going to meet you through it, which I think he can, and he has met me multiple times through it, if you want to persevere and read it, read it slowly, be patient with yourself, be patient with the book. Um, read the same page multiple times. That's how you get stronger. It's kind of like everyone knows that lifting weights, <laughs> you know, you may start lifting five pounds, but if you keep lifting five pounds over and over and over again, you'll be able to lift 10 and then 20 and you'll be able to to do more. But if you're, if you're only going to be satisfied with never lifting weights, you're you're not gonna be able to pick up the 20 pounds. Like it's just not going to happen. And so in our culture, I think we need to see reading as a challenge that we can get stronger, that we can get better uh, and choose the kind of lifestyle habits that either allow us to do that or that allow us to be passive recipients of the culture that is spoon fed to us. We get to choose who we want to be and how we want to live. That's a really good answer. I love the metaphor too. What do you think about, um, like I know my own daughter, she loves Dostoevsky. And I know the thing that was hard for her, I mean, be hard for anybody was how to pronounce all the Russian names, for yeah. examples. So she she listens to the audio books and then she goes back and reads them just so the names work. I mean, what, what's your, do you have any opinion about audio books versus just audiobooks. reading? Oh, I love audio books. I mean, you know, I think most of our culture like history, human history. Again, I go back to Homer and stuff. Those were all performed. They were all read aloud. And so my favorite audiobooks are the ones that perform to you. I, I have no elitism of reading the page versus the audible. It doesn't depend on people's ability to pay attention. I mean, my husband can't pay attention. He can't do two things at one time. And so he has to like listen to the audio and that's all he's doing. He can't listen to the audio and do something else simultaneously or the book didn't happen, right? Uh, so it just kind of depends on personality and abilities where you are, but audiobooks are fantastic. I really love performances. Um, Jeremy Irons performing uh, T.S. Eliot, Four Quartets. So oh, wow. good, so good. Yeah. George Saunders' uh, Swim in the Rain, he has like a cast of like 12 to 15 people in which you know they he actually teaches you about writing but someone else performs the russian short story it's so cool that's cool yeah so i'm big on good audiobooks and when they're done well bbc cast does um all the great classics you can get like agatha christie on your phone you can get charles dickens and it's a cast performing the play totally worthwhile i think these are all great ways to get the stories into your imagination well, thank you. That's good. Yeah. That's good. And we have a lot of pastors that listen. It's not exclusively pastors, and this yeah. could probably be for anybody, but like if a person tends to gravitate more to nonfiction for various reasons, they're reading theology or even reading their disciplines, um, yeah. if they're a professional person, like, do you have a recommendation for how to get more fiction into a person's life? Or even maybe is there an ideal 
ratio or balance, and it probably isn't an answer to that, but I'm just curious what your thoughts are for just maybe a balanced reading schedule. So you're actually are engaging some of these great books mm. from time to time. Yeah. I mean, most of, most of the Bible, as you've already mentioned is fiction, I mean, not fiction, it's narrative. Right. So much of it is narrative and poetry. And so if you are going to develop the muscles to use that analogy again, to be able to read the Bible well, especially if you're a pastor, if you were only reading nonfiction, you're not reading the Bible well. And I, I mean, I, I, again, I hate to offend people, um, but you have to know how narratives work. And so you yeah. need practice reading narratives so that you can understand the narrative of the Bible. I mean, uh, Robert Art Alter wrote The Art of Biblical Narrative. Uh, Leland Riken, How to Read the Bible as Literature. There's tons of people who have done work on this, but the Bible is so literary and most of us have lost our literary capacity that we are not understanding the Bible correctly because we've lost our ability to read stories well. So if that is a challenge for you, you do need to correct it. <laughs> I think that you really do. And so I, I would recommend, C.S. Lewis used to say, for every new book you read, read three old books. So maybe for every nonfiction, you read three fiction, right? And, you know, try it narrative. I wouldn't even say fiction. For every nonfiction, read three narrative books, books that enhance your ability to read narratives well. That's good. Thank you. And again, appreciate your time. So these last questions are the ones I like to ask everybody that comes on the podcast. Uh, and again, this, some of these are uh, uh, not the easiest ones to answer either in a sense, but uh, you know, could you just talk a little bit about maybe your next book? And, and I'm also always curious and get them out trying to dig anything out of the inside of you, but is there like a book that you, you're almost afraid to write for whatever reason, whether it's too daunting or uh, something um, that, that you like to do over the course of your career? Wow. Okay. Well, that is a good question. Uh, so the book I'm currently writing is on how to read. And so I'm doing this uh, right now. And I, you know, that's after years of teaching, I've just mm -hmm. found that we have lost the art of reading well. And so I'm trying to look at what that looks like, right? For, especially again, for pastors and for uh, Christians who have become so accustomed to reading nonfiction, what does it mean to read well? And, and I hope it helps people read the Bible well. So that's what I'm currently working on. Um, as far as a book that I, maybe I'm challenged to write, you know, when I was in uh, college, I was a major in creative writing because I was going to write novels. And um, John Gardner wrote this book on how uh, the art of fiction or something like that. And the first thing he says is, if you want to be a writer, read tons of books. So I only went to get a PhD because I thought, well, I have a lot more books I need to read before I can write well. And then I got sidetracked, not sidetracked, but I have made a career of teaching people how to read these books. So I guess the big fear, but desire would be to be the next like Barbara Penn or Penelope Fitzgerald and in my fifties, write, you know, I'm not even 40 yet, maybe in my forties, write a novel, right? Like turn down, like turn back to fiction potentially next, but that is, yeah, that is scary. <laughs> no, that'd be, that'd be fun. I've always thought about writing a, a, a work of fiction too. I've never, yeah. I've never done that either, but to, yeah, that's cool. Thank you for that answer. And, and what, and for you, like personally, do, do you have um, like, what keeps you grounded? I mean, beyond just, I guess, or doing a lot of reading, like you've talked about, but do you have like a rhythms that you go through that really help you to stay grounded as a, as a Christian uh, in the world? Yes. I mean, I, I believe in spiritual practices. I think spiritual practices are necessary. Mm -hmm. To remind us how to see correctly, how to see things in perspective, how to order our loves, you know, the way Augustine would say. Um, so for me, daily Bible reading is necessary. Uh, I have to start my day with scripture. I'm talking about audio. Sometimes it is 
listening to the Bible while I walk my dog and drink my coffee simultaneously. <laughs> um, but I'm always trying to stay in the word every single day. So I think that's important. Um, daily prayer, prayer with family, prayer by myself, um, prayer with my spouse. I mean, I think we just, we have regular prayer throughout our household. I use the book of common prayer too, especially when prayer is hard or prayer is dry. Um, I, I lean into that. So I lean into our, the structures. Um, C.S. Lewis, I mean, you'll appreciate this. You've probably already heard it before, but C.S. Lewis used to say about rote prayers or some of these liturgies um, that looked oscillating, that instead what they were is they were teaching you the steps of the dance so that even when it felt like you didn't want to dance, you knew the steps and you could just keep dancing. And so for my spiritual life, I'm constantly trying to practice the steps of the dance so that when the seasons are dry, I'm still dancing. Um, and when I'm filled with joy, I know how to dance. That's great. I love that. I love that. That's a great answer. Thank you. Yeah. Now, now this will be the hardest question you have to answer of all day. So uh, outside of the Bible, like what, what have been like two or three books out of all the ones that you've read that have really helped to shape you personally and spiritually? Yeah, actually, that's not hard because okay. I, I do get asked that a lot and I have my top three always. Um, okay, cool. comedy, the Brothers Karamazov and Augustine's Confessions. Wow. Uh, those are my top three by far. Um, I, they've just, they've influenced me the most in, in how I see the world. It's funny though, because I, I say that I've been saying those three books for like 10 years, but I've been quoting C.S. Lewis so much because he talks about how to read. Yeah. That is not, I mean, it's so funny because I don't just live how to read. Those, those authors have taught me how to love how to care about people, what to hope for, what's the difference between justice and injustice. I mean, they've taught me the great ideas, but Lewis has taught me so much about how to read. I find myself quoting him all the time. <laughs> um, but but they taught me more of the other stuff. <laughs> so. No, that's good. You know, it's really funny too. It's like, um, if I take me and my my, my two daughters, my youngest daughter has loves Dante. My oldest daughter loves Dostoevsky. And I won't say I love Augustine, but I'm the only one that's read confessions on the three of us. So that's just funny that those are three very popular books in my, in my or at least well-known books in my own house. So that's, that's really good. Thank you. And then, then the last question, um, talk about uh, when does the scandal of holiness come out? Where can people find it? And if folks want to engage more of your work, where can they find out a little bit more about you online? Yeah. And I'm, you know, we, we were talking about when you would release this. There is a pre-order launch group right now in which okay. a lot I'm having these interviews with different people. And so if you pre-order, you get to see some of those interviews with like Karen Swallow Pryor and Andrew Peterson and Tish Oxenreiter and Joy Clarkson and um, just a host of, of people who care about reading in the Christian church. And uh, so I would love for people to kind of join that group. It's going to be on Facebook and we'll also have some Facebook live. And that way we get to really participate. Like I said, I hope the book is a conversation starter. I hope it turns into a book club. It would be so cool if people wanted to read the books that I list <laughs> throughout here and I would happily come in and, you know, talk to different groups via Zoom and um, talk about these books and join book clubs. And I just think that'd be the coolest thing. So. No, that would be great if you, if yeah. you would do that. And I have to say when I, when I read through the, um, through the, through the, um, through the book, um, just because I haven't read enough newer very little 20th century fiction, I guess. I, I was making some lists of books that I would like to read. So I think your book's really effective in, in what it tries to do. And it's and it's just, and it's super interesting because it's always think like, how do you write a book about how to read books? But you did it. And it's, uh, and I definitely want to recommend it. And it's very deep and it's got a lot of theology embedded into this too. So it's really cool. So I want to thank you for 
answering God's call on your life and using your immense intellectual gifts uh, for the faith. And then, you know, in writing, and I also want to thank you for your time and coming on and talking to myself and then everybody who's been with us all the way to the end of this conversation, Jessica. Well, thank you, Brian. I really appreciate the invitation. You're very welcome. And I want to thank everybody for listening all the way to the end of this week's episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. Until next time, live by faith, be known by love, and be a voice of hope in the world. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. If you found this episode helpful, would you please share it with friends through your social media networks, as well as leaving a review to help other people find it? If you're interested in any of the resources mentioned, please check out the show notes. And let me again remind you, if you're interested in contemplative practices, my latest book, Centering Prayer, Sitting Quietly in God's Presence, Can Change Your Life, is now available in paperback or on Kindle. Recommend ordering it off of Amazon. If you want to do a large order, I would reach out directly to Paraclete Press. Ask for Sister Estelle, and you can get some deep discounts if you're interested in buying Say any quantity over of at least three or more copies, you can get good discounts directly from Paraclete. Thank you so much for the privilege of serving you, and we'll see you next time.